Hebrews 1. You can stand as you find that. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through 8. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purifications of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high." having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. I'll pray. God, we again are just so grateful that we can know You, and that we can call upon You and know that You hear us. Thank You for all that Jesus is and has done for us, as we've sung about and as we've commemorated through the Lord's Supper that it is indeed a finished work. Our sin has been paid for, washed clean as we place our faith in Christ. And we, again, just want Him to be exalted in our hearts to be fully inclined to Him for His praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. <clears throat> nice to see you again. Um, we are slowly working our way through the Bernie Bible Church Statement of Faith. And we are on Article 3 this morning, which has to do with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. So the first article, you recall, was on Scripture. And then the second, theology proper on the person of God. And now on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf. So, um, my goal here is that we as a fellowship would understand um, the doctrinal statement of this church, not so that this would become a basis of fellowship, um, because there, this doctrinal statement is more comprehensive than that. We would welcome people here at this church who do not agree with every point of the doctrinal statement. But some of these things are more important than others, and this is one of those things. What, the, what we say about Scripture, non-negotiable. What we say about the person of God, non-negotiable. And what we say about the person of Jesus Christ, non-negotiable. There's going to be some other things that we get into, on, again, for a basis of fellowship, um, not a, a criteria. But we don't want um, folks to come into the church and say, well, I'm just going to, maybe God has called me to this church to kind of change things a little bit. Don't you love that when that happens? And I've had students at His Hill. I'll never forget one year a guy just was convinced that every teacher at His Hill was a false teacher. And I said, does that include me? And he goes, yes, that includes you. 
And I said, well, why did God bring you here to his hill? And he says, well, to change everything here. And I said, well, I'm thinking it's not God that brought you here to his hill. And so he left. Um, so this morning we want to, and it's just such a, what a privilege. I mean, I've just been thinking um, for two weeks now in preparation for this message and um, and then the Sunday here that we've already had with the song selection that Todd chose and, the, and the remembering the Lord with communion. I mean, everything's just, what a privilege just to focus on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the third article of our statement of faith says, we believe that Jesus Christ is the true God and true man. Having been conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, he died on the cross and sacrificed for our sins according to the scriptures. Further, he arose bodily from the dead and ascended into heaven where at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is now our high priest. So one of the things that's so amazing about today is that there's this stuff here up on the board, on the, on the screen, because that's not me, as you, can, as you know. And so after this sermon series is over, we'll dispense of that. Um, I'll go back to my PowerPointing like this. Um, so the first part, we believe that Jesus Christ is the true God and true man. Jesus Christ. Um, Christ is not his last name. It is a title. It is the Greek word for Messiah. Jesus is his name, and it is his human name. He did not have the name Jesus until he took on humanity and was born. In eternity past, he was never called Jesus. He was simply called Son of God. Um, so Jesus is what is, is attached to his humanity. Christ, Messiah, we know from the very beginning, and we looked at this with Genesis 3, when God said to Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. And then when she named her first son, Cain, we know in the Hebrew she was literally naming him the God-man. And so she understood from what God said about her seed crushing the head of the serpent that it could not be just um, a, a pure and only a man. It had to be someone who was both man and something more, God. Because the only one who is able to crush Satan would be God. And so she demonstrated tremendous insight when she named her son what she did. And so really from the beginning... There is no, there, it's, it's been clear, and it should be of no surprise to any Jew, that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And we see this throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. We have even unbelievers like Caiaphas that are asking Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And so he demonstrated by that statement that he understood that the Messiah, the Christ, had to be the Son of God. Son of God doesn't mean less than God. I've made this point before. Son of God, son of man. Son of simply means the one who represents. And so he is not less than man because he's called son of man. He's not less than God because he's called son of God. He is fully man and he is fully God. True man 
and true God. He is not less than God. He is not an angel. This is one of the reasons I wanted to read from Hebrews 1 this morning, because it makes clear that he is above the angels. He's been given a name that is above all the angels, and that he is, in fact, called God. Thy, of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is much more than an angel. He is the only God. There is no other God. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, God speaks and says, I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. What wonderful statements there. So there is one God. As we looked at, when we looked at the at the theology proper and we looked at the Trinity the one God is three persons but they are each fully God one is not more God or less God than the other and our one God is eternal he has existed for all time and so when he says in Isaiah I am he before me there was no God formed and Hebrews 1 is calling Jesus God we can connect those verses and say He is God, He is fully God, He has always been God, He did not become God. Our Mormon friends will tell us that they have the hope of becoming a God. They are going to be disappointed. I, before me there was no God form, there will be none after me. And then I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. If Jesus is God, and He is, then any other God is a false God, and He is not able to save. He has always been God. Not to believe in the deity of Christ is to believe in another God. It is to believe in one who cannot save. It's not complicated. And it is very exclusive. All truth is exclusive. All truth is exclusive. And when the Bible says that Jesus is God, and if a person says, I believe in God, but I do not believe Jesus is God, they believe in another God. It's as simple as that. And the God that they believe in cannot save because it's another God. And there's only one God who can save, and that is the God of the Bible, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word God shouldn't be taken lightly. It encompasses all the issues of authority. He is God. He has absolute, complete authority. He is not one to be argued with. Disputed with, questioned, he is God. This is why we approach his word as the word of God, and there's no dispute, there's no debate. Some things are hard to understand, we get it. There's going to be reasonable disagreements about what the text means, but there is so much in Scripture that is absolutely clear. And because God is God, and it is his word, we cannot 
question or argue about it, our one response is to yield. To yield in faith and obedience to what he has said. Because he is God, he is worthy of all worship and he alone. Nothing else deserves our worship. No one else has that central place. He should be the central orientation of all of life. We should be characterized as people who fear God. He is the source, the means, and the goal of all things, as a Roman, Romans 11.36 says. We believe that Jesus Christ is true God. We also believe that he is true man. He became man. Connor read it this morning in our uh, in scripture reading for the Lord's Supper. Humanity was added to his person. One person, two natures. His nature as God did not change. The divine nature remained the same. The divinity of God was not altered by God becoming man. Now, the person of Jesus, distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit, the person of Jesus has two natures. Divinity, deity, and also humanity. He is the God-man. This should not be too troublesome for us. It's, it's a mystery. We can't fully get our minds around it, but there's no contradiction. That one person can have two natures. That Jesus Christ can be fully God and fully man. Our Bibles could say, be characterized as the same. Written by man, written by God. Both statements are true. Two natures for our Bible. And in fact, to deny the dual nature of Jesus, you have to deny the dual nature of Scripture. To deny the dual nature of Scripture, you have to deny the, the dual nature of Jesus. But not just Jesus in our Bible. It occurs to me that every single child, when they enter this world, they have two um, dispositions, two natures that are operating in their life. One for death and one for life. And for the first 20, 30 years of their life, life is winning. And then they reach that peak, and now death begins to win. Much, many of us, death is winning. That's why we have gray hair and all those other pains that come. You wake up in the morning with all those pains. You didn't have those when you were a kid because life was winning. But from the very moment of conception, we have both death and life working in us. And then you receive Christ. And again, two natures. The sin nature that you had when you came into this world and then you place your faith in Christ and added to you is the divine nature. You become a partaker in the very nature of God himself. And so we have two natures working within us. One person, two natures. Shouldn't be difficult to understand that Jesus also, one person, two natures. True man. I kind of like it that that's in our doctrinal statement. True man. Because Jesus is man as God intended for man to be. 
as Major Thomas loved to say, Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers, man as God intended man to be. Paul describes Jesus as the last Adam. Adam being the first man, Christ the last Adam, he is the fulfillment of all that man is to be. He is the personification of humanity. He is the prototype of what God intended for man to be. You want to know humanity as God designed it to be, look at the person of Jesus. Fully, fully man, as well as fully God. Because he is both God and man, we have one mediator between God and man, and it doesn't get any better than that. I remember sitting down with a lawyer one time, and, and um, he knew both me and the other party, and the other party wanted him to represent both of us, both parties, so they could be sure that everything was going to be up and up. And my friend, the attorney, just was insistent, no way, this is unethical. A lawyer never represents both parties. And I said, I understand what you're saying. But I, I have nothing to hide. And they want to know that everything is on the up and up. So I am in agreement with this. I want you to represent both of us. And so he had us sign a document saying that he was doing this against his will. <laughs> against his better judgment. And everything went well. And this is what God has done in Christ. We have one Lawyer, as it were, one mediator between the two parties who knows us both perfectly. And he is a lawyer of integrity who will represent mankind perfectly and represents God perfectly. One mediator simplifies everything. Our doctrinal statement goes on and says, having been conceived of the Holy Spirit. Christ's conception, the conception of Jesus pertaining to his humanity, there was no conception pertaining to his deity because deity doesn't have a beginning. But in respect to his humanity, that conception was the work of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to know how to, how to put this in, in language that isn't confusing. We don't want to say too much. We don't want to say too little when describing this. The preposition that's used here is of the Spirit. It seems that those who wrote this doctrinal statement were maybe wanting to avoid the preposition by the Spirit. I don't know, but I kind of get that, that sense. And if that was the case, it was because we want to avoid any suggestion that there was a physical act, a sexual act involved when Mary became pregnant, when she was with child. We want to avoid that. There are those groups, the Mormons again, to reference them. They believe that there was an actual physical act between Mary and the Holy Spirit. That is not what the scripture says. That would be something that would be unholy. And the Bible stresses in this act of conception, this Bible stresses the holiness of it, that you shall be with child by literally the Spirit holy. And the holy is put in an unusual place so that we would know this is an holy act. There was nothing sexual involved.
born of the Virgin Mary. The virginity of Mary is emphasized in Scripture, not her sinlessness, because she wasn't without sin. The Bible never says she was without sin, but it says that she was a virgin. And the reason for the emphasis on the virginity, she knew no man, therefore Jesus was unaccounted for by her or by any man. She couldn't take credit. No other man could take responsibility. The only one that can take credit for what happened is God. And all God did, I believe, was just say, be pregnant. As simple as that. Just as he created this universe and said, let there be light. He said into Mary's womb, let there be a child. God is the only explanation for what happened. She had to be a virgin to make clear that God did it. No man was involved. She did not have to be sinless. Mary herself was in need of a Savior. Luke 1.47, she speaks and she says, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She did not ascend into heaven. She is not the mother of God. She is not co-redeemer or co-mediator. She was not a perpetual virgin. She was not the greatest person who ever lived. The greatest person, Jesus said, that ever lived, born of a woman, and that would include Mary, was John the Baptist. Jesus elevates John the Baptist above his mother. When Jesus said, the greatest one ever born of a woman is John the Baptist. But he also said the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Later, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was told, Behold, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus said, Who are my mother and brothers? I'll tell you who my mother and brothers are, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And again, Jesus is elevating others ahead of his own mother and his brothers. So yes, Jesus was virgin born of Mary, but it was the work of God and Mary, as, as wonderful as a woman as she was, um, and praiseworthy. And it cost her dearly to say yes to God's activity in her life. She wasn't the focus, but rather what God did in becoming man. He died on the cross. This was a literal, actual death. There are those people that would say that Jesus did not die. That he just ascended up into heaven. They are mistaken. It is very clear in scripture and very important to acknowledge that it was a literal, actual death. It was a total death. He died physically and spiritually. And the reason that's important is because sin impacts us in every aspect of our being. Impacts us spiritually and physically. And so Jesus took upon himself all the consequences of sin, both spiritual and physical. Death on the cross was the ultimate humiliation, as Philippians 2 points out. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate humiliation. And also the ultimate act of obedience. And it resulted in ultimate exaltation. He has been given a name above all names. 
He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He was not personally guilty. He was without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he is a high priest who was tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. Sin necessitates death. The wages of sin is death. God could not mercify us. I think I got that from J. Vernon McGee years ago. But he can only justify us. If all we needed was the mercy of God, <coughs> and God being a merciful God, he could have just in mercy said, you're saved. But he's a just God. And the mercy of God does not trump the justice, and the justice doesn't trump the mercy. In order to show mercy, his justice had to be satisfied. And the only way for the justice to be satisfied is for the payment of sin to be made. Our sin. Sin necessitates death. There is no other way for God to save us other than to have our sin paid for. No other way. Not by our penance, not by our repentance, not by our feeling sorry for our sin, regretting our sin, hating our sin. The only thing that pays for our sin is Jesus Christ dying for our sin. And he died as a substitute for us. Galatians 1.4 says he gave himself for our sins. As man, he was a suitable substitute. Man has sinned. Therefore, a man needed to die for our sins. He was a suitable substitute. As God, he was a sufficient substitute. There's no way that one man could die for all the sins of all the world. But God can pay for all the sins of all the world. As man, a suitable substitute. As God, a sufficient substitute. And he died according to the scriptures. This was prophesied from Genesis 3 all the way through Scripture. Isaiah 53 is a favorite passage for, for all of us where it says that for our iniquity he was bruised, that he took our sin upon himself. This was not an accident, in other words. It was not a tragedy. Yes, what happened was horrible, but it wasn't an accident it wasn't like a car wreck. And you go, oh my, it, it was not tragic. It was not an accident. It was the plan and purpose of God. And after dying for our sins, he arose bodily from the dead. Make no mistake, we are justified by his blood, not by his resurrection. Romans 5, 9 says, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. No Christian will go through the wrath of, a God, wrath of God, experience God's wrath, because Christ placated, propitiated God's wrath through his shed blood. And it is blood, his blood that justifies us. The resurrection is proof. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, we would have no idea whether his death on the cross was of any benefit to us. In fact, we would have to assume that it was not, that his blood was wasted, his death was for naught, if he had not been raised from the dead. So the resurrection is evidence in history that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient payment for our sin. Bodily resurrection means total payment for sin and its consequences. 
people will often ask, Charlie, do you believe, do you believe at, a, at an evangelical free church at Bernie Bible Church that healing is in the atonement? Do you believe that Jesus accomplished everything that needed to be done on the cross? Amen. Amen. And yet, there is a not yet to our faith. Jesus indeed said from the cross in John 19.30, it is finished. But did you know that in Revelation 21.6, he also says, it is done? There's a bit of time span between when he died on the cross and the end of the book of Revelation. It is done, is said, when the new heaven and the new earth come into existence. And so between the cross, it is finished, and the new heaven and new earth, it is done. Yes, Jesus died for everything that needs to be accomplished, that needs to be done to pay for our sin. But the curse of sin is still on this world. The devil still runs free. And we still have evil in us, as Paul says in Romans 7. And we still die. Jesus rose from the dead. And because of his resurrection, we too will rise from the dead. But it doesn't mean we won't die. And unless the Lord chooses to rapture us, I'm no prophet or a son of prophet, but I can tell you we are all going to die. Even though there is healing in the atonement. There is also resurrection in the atonement. Everything we would ever need, he's done. But there is a not yet to our faith. He ascended into heaven. Jesus did not die a second time. And we are told there is no second death for the believer in Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Christ and you will die one time. Unless we're raptured. Don't place your faith in Christ and you will die twice. Scripture says. You will die physically. And then at a later point, you will stand before God in the great white throne judgment. And you will experience what the Bible calls the second death, which is eternal separation from God. Jesus died once, never to die again. And we will die once, never to die again. Because we have been crucified and raised with him. His body is in heaven Spiritually, he can indwell us, and he does. Us being those who have placed their faith in him. Heaven is more about position than location. Yes, his body is not on earth. And yes, his body is in heaven. But the real point of this is that he has been exalted. Above all. This is like when we say, when he says, This is how to pray, our Father who art, what? In heaven. He is exalted above all fathers. We're at the right hand of the majesty on high, and this was, is from Hebrews 1 that I read this morning, and it tells us he is in the place of highest honor, he is with the most high God. He has been restored to all his former glory, power, and position. And he is now our high priest. 
He is the only potential Savior for all who do not yet know Him. He intercedes for those who have believed in Him and have received Him. He is the only access to the Father. He is the way, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through Him. On His merits, by His blood, we approach the Father. And therefore, we can approach the Father because it is never about us. How good we are doesn't give us access to the Father. How bad we are doesn't mean we can't come to the Father. The way has been opened through the blood of Jesus Christ. The dividing wall, the curtain has been ripped and we can now enter boldly, confidently before the throne of grace to receive grace to help in our time of need because Christ is our high priest. And if he is not a person's high priest, he will be their judge. It's very important that we not just have a good doctrinal statement, and I believe in good doctrinal statements. It's important that we not only be confessionally right, but that we also be true in our actions to what we confess. Jesus says in John 5, 39 and 40, speaking of the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Jesus didn't say they had a bad doctrinal statement, but he says you didn't go beyond the scriptures to me. The scriptures bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me. You can have a great doctrinal statement and not know Jesus. I have a friend, in fact, he was visiting here last week. I forgot to make sure that my memory is right on this, but as I recall, he had gone through seminary and graduated with his Master of Divinity and was pastoring a church and was part of a uh, ministerial Alliance um, um, fellowship there in his town. And once a month or so, the pastors would get together and have lunch. And he hadn't been part of that very long where one of the pastors recognized this seminary grad who's pastoring a church does not know Jesus. And another pastor in town led him to Christ. So you can have a great doctrinal statement, but not know Jesus. In Galatians 1.6, we were looking at it this morning in the adult Sunday school class. Jesus says, a different gospel is a desertion of Jesus. So it's important to get this message, this gospel statement, this, this doctrinal statement concerning especially the person of Jesus correct. Because if it's not, it's another Jesus. It's another gospel and it is another Jesus. My Savior is Jesus Christ, who is God who became man. He lived a sinless life and gave himself for me that my sin might be paid for and the justice of God satisfied, cleansing me from my sin and restoring me to a relationship with God and restoring my humanity to what God created it to be. There is no other Savior. He died for all my sin, 
I have passed from death into life. I will not be judged. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He arose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he now intercedes for me. He is the source and the means for all that he requires of me. Sin is real, salvation is available. It is imperative we call it sin and accept God's only remedy, which is Jesus and his shed blood. The cross is not a tragedy. It is the very demonstration of God's love for us. The resurrection means we have a Savior who is alive and who lives to save us. There is one, the scripture says, who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. So you can see how serious this is. To deny in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ is the spirit of the Antichrist. In 1 John 2, John wrote and said, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The implications of that are so clear. If a person again says, I believe in God, I love God, I just cannot accept the deity of Jesus Christ and that he died for my sins. John says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. I want to conclude with the most important question that probably was, has ever been asked. Jesus, in Matthew 16, turned his disciples and said, Who do men say that I am? And Peter, liking to speak for everyone else, said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the most important question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hallelujah. You can't even say those words without getting an, just an understanding of just the impressiveness, the majesty of those words. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe that? That question is the most important question that you will ever have to answer. I believe if you do not answer that question now, while you are walking this earth, you will not get the chance to answer that question after you pass away. Because it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. If God asks that question of us, who have not received Christ, if he should ask that question when we die, it's too late. We've already answered it. We did not believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to deny Christ is to deny the Father. You cannot have the Father without the Son. We believe that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, having been conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins according to the scriptures. Further, he arose bodily from the dead and ascended into heaven, where at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is now our high priest. He is the living God. And he lives to save us. Amen? I'll close us in prayer. I thank you, God, that you have revealed these things simply and clearly. Just as when you spoke from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You didn't stammer. You didn't mumble. It was clear, simple. It's the truth. I pray that we, Lord, would each in this room and those that are others that are watching, that it would be true of every one of us, God, that we have answered this question, who do you say that I am? As Peter did, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that we would place our faith in him as the only one to save us and the only access to God the Father. I pray that we would also live each day in our actions, confessing that we would be living witnesses in our humanity of your saving grace. That the only explanation for our lives is Jesus, in whom we have placed our trust. And that we would live each day in the reality of your life and that you live to save us not depending on our own strength, not worrying and fretting about the things of this world, but trusting in you and being unmoved because you are our rock. In Jesus' name, amen.